0: Good morning, church. My name is Nico Muhale and I will be doing the Bible reading for us this morning. Our reading comes from John twenty verses nineteen to thirty one. John chapter twenty verses nineteen to thirty one. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fears of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld." Now Thomas, one of the 12, called Twin, called the Twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God.
1: My name is Martin. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church Midrand. And let me add my welcome to that of Kate and welcome you to our Easter Sunday morning. If you are a guest or a visitor, a very, very special welcome. It really is Lovely to have you here with us this morning, and uh, I hope that you can join us once again in the weeks that lie ahead. This morning we're looking at John chapter 20. On Friday morning I looked at John 19. If you missed that, you can pick that up on YouTube, John 19 on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, John 20, and this evening at our 6 o'clock service, you're most welcome to join us. I'll be looking at Matthew 28. Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in Judea. This deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular." end of quote Another source Pliny the Younger if you did Latin at school or university you would have translated some of the letters of Pliny the Younger he was a friend of Tacitus lived at the same time and uh, he wasn't a Roman historian he was a Roman governor in the province of Bithynia in Asia Minor and he's writing to the emperor Trajan to ask his advice on how to deal with Christians he was persecuting them And he's asking for advice as to how to deal with them. I quote, The Christians affirmed, however, that the sum of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang a hymn to Christ as to a God. Then they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do wicked deeds, but rather never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a trust. Then they participated in a meal, end of quote. I do have a question as to why Pliny is called Pliny the Younger, and I am not called Martin the Younger, but (laughs) we leave it at that. A third quote, there are other sources. A third quote is not a Roman, he's a Jewish historian called Josephus. You can Google him, you can read his volumes and volumes as he gives the history of the Jewish people. And uh, he wrote, he was born around about A.D. 37, and he's writing to the Roman authorities, to the Roman emperor. And this is what he says, and I'm reading from the Arabic text of the passage. I quote, "'At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die.' And those who had become his disciples did not abandon him. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. End of quote. You see, when we look at the Bible, when we look at ancient history, documents of antiquity, it is beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago it is beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And I would argue that it is beyond any reasonable doubt that he was physically, bodily, objectively raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. Do you think there would have been any remembrance of Jesus if his death had been the end? The Romans who perfected crucifixion, They crucified tens of thousands of people. It was a common practice. Do you think there would have been any remembrance of Jesus who lived and died at the back end of the Roman Empire if he hadn't been raised from the dead? Have you ever wondered why human history is divided between B.C. and A.D.? Because of one man called Jesus, who lived, who died, and God raised him from the dead. I don't think that there is any reasonable doubt to disbelieve the physical, objective, supernatural resurrection of Christ from the dead. But as we look at this passage, there was one who had significant doubt. He did not think it was reasonable to believe in the resurrection, and his name was Thomas, and I want us to have a look at Thomas. And I want to draw out three principles as we look at the life of Thomas. Because Thomas doubted the resurrection. Three principles Christian faith is reasonable, number one. Number two, the Christian faith is faith. And number three, the Christian faith is vital. Let me read again from verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, when we have a look at Thomas, Thomas really is a 21st century man. He's a modern man. He lives in Midrand, he lives in Gauteng. He certainly did not think that the resurrection of Jesus was reasonable. No doubt he'd been at Calvary. No doubt, perhaps from a distance, he saw Jesus uh, being nailed to the cross. Perhaps he saw Jesus dying on the cross, crying out, it is finished. Perhaps he saw them take Jesus down from the cross. Perhaps he saw Joseph burying Jesus. But now the other disciples tell him that they saw Jesus alive. Verse 24, Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, I mean, we can understand the doubt of Thomas. I mean, dead people stay dead. Dead people are not raised from the dead. Many of us here this morning have, have, have been to many, many funerals. Many funerals. Have you ever, ever seen anyone being raised from the dead? No. Dead people stay dead. Perhaps Thomas even pitied his friends. I mean, why can't they just face facts, accept reality? We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead. Our leader's dead. It's over. It's finished. Get on with it. It's life. Perhaps in his heart, he wanted to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but his head would not allow it. He said, I would never believe it. He wanted concrete evidence. Notice there again verse 25. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands, this is concrete evidence. I want to see it. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is a modern man. He's a 21st century man. I'm sure he would say spirituality is good. Faith is good, it's good for children so lovely that the children came up this morning. It's good when you're suffering. It's good when you need comfort. But I'm really not prepared to accept a resurrected Christ. I'm not going to commit intellectual suicide. I want to see it. I'm a science person, not a faith person. Ever heard that? That's Thomas. Now, perhaps there were others, and there are others now, who wouldn't put it quite as strongly. They would recognize the place of faith, even in a modern scientific age but it's a faith divorced from reason. So most people are drawn to some form of spirituality, maybe New Age, it may be ancestors, it may be Eastern Hinduism. But whatever it is, it's faith for the soul, not for the mind. There's nothing rational about it. However, what you need to know is that the Bible and the Christian faith and we at this church are absolutely categorical that the Christian faith is reasonable, it is rational, that the Christian faith is based upon fact, on objective fact. It may affect us personally, it will affect us personally, subjectively, emotionally, but the reason, the basis of the Christian faith is not based upon my faith. It is objectively true. It's historically true. It's based upon the death and resurrection of Christ. Notice how John goes, have a look at chapter 19, verse 30. John, who was an eyewitness, you remember from Friday, John was one of the twelve. He had been with Jesus from the beginning to the bitter end. He was an eyewitness. He's reporting what he saw. Notice in chapter 19, he goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus was dead. Chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's dead. Verse 34, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He's dead, says John. Verse 38, Notice how the word body repeats itself here. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 40, again the body. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. No doubt in John's mind that Jesus was dead. It wasn't rescue 911 that after 20 minutes he was resuscitated. No, he was dead. Chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, the body is missing. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, of course, that doesn't prove anything. Bodies do go missing, asked the government mortuary. What proves the resurrection is the evidence, is the eyewitness testimony. Notice chapter 20, verse 19. Chapter 20, verse 19. The disciples saw him. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He has the Lord in his resurrected body, and he walks through walls. He had a real body. It was a physical body. He spoke. He used his vocal cords, his tongue. He ate. Remember chapter 21, they have a fish bride. And Jesus is eating, yellowtail. Now the fish doesn't disappear into midair. He's not a ghost. He had a real body, but it was a resurrected body, so he walked through walls. Don't try this at home. (laughs) But what proves the resurrection is the disciples' testimony, and then notice the woman's testimony, verse 14. And this is very notable. Notice verse 11. The first witness to the resurrected Christ was Mary. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The reason that is so striking is that the Jewish culture at that time was very patriarchal. So a woman's testimony would not be accepted in a court of law. And yet John tells us the first witness of the resurrected Christ was a woman. So if John had been making this up, if it was a myth, He certainly would not have made woman the first uh, witnesses of the resurrection. But he's telling it as it is. They saw him. They spoke to him. We know from verse 24, up to this point, Thomas wasn't there. He hadn't seen Jesus. He wanted evidence. He wanted hard facts. I'm a reasonable man, says Thomas. Give me reasonable evidence. And then suddenly, verse 26... Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, verse 27, which really is a repetition of what Thomas has said, verse 25. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Graciously, Jesus gives him exactly the evidence he's looking for. Now, I very much doubt that Thomas actually put his finger in the hand of Jesus or put his hand into his side. I don't think so. I think rather, verse 28, he just responded with worship. Here was Jesus. And he says, my Lord and my God... So what this tells us is that the Christian faith is not committing intellectual suicide. Thomas was not convinced by his feelings or emotions. No, his faith was based on evidence. It's his eyes and his mind that convinced him that Jesus was alive. He must have been raised from the dead. So biblical faith is based upon evidence outside of us. Verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Now, most people in our culture sort of think that faith is a kind of a subjective thing. You either have it or you don't. Uh, It sort of just pops into your head out of the blue. Or perhaps you're just the religious type, and I'm not. You believe in fairies, I wish I had your faith. But that's not Christian faith. Christian faith rests on evidence outside of us. Verse 28, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Why did he say that? It's not just faith popped into his head out of the blue. He didn't just feel that way. No, his faith was based on evidence outside of himself. He saw the nail marks in the hands of Jesus. He saw the wounds in Jesus' side. And Jesus was very much alive. He saw the evidence. Now, why is that important? Because if you are not yet a believer, you need to know faith is not just going to pop into your head. It's not just going to come out of the blue. No, you need to investigate the evidence. You need to read the Gospels. What do we have here? We have eyewitness testimony to who Jesus was about his death, about his resurrection. You need to look for the answers. There is evidence. It's here in front of us. It's staring you in the face. And it's perfectly reasonable and rational to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who died and whom God raised from the dead. Perhaps you're a Christian and you're struggling with all kinds of doubts at the moment. Perhaps you're going through a tough time at the moment. You're suffering perhaps grief or loneliness, perhaps unanswered prayers. Is God really there? Does he really care? Does he love me? Let me tell you, God does not answer all our questions. But it doesn't mean that he's not real. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. We know that because of the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and that he's here with us by his Spirit. There's evidence. I heard of an older Christian man, a mature Christian man, who sometimes struggled with doubts and questions. And uh, they tended to come in the morning. Tended, he was tempted not to live for Christ every day. So he decided, every morning when I wake up, when I put my feet on the floor, I'm going to say to myself, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, he is. Was Jesus raised from the dead? Yes, he was. Well, just get on with it. Stop moping and live for Christ. We need to remind ourselves of the truth, of the evidence. Just one last comment. I've often said this before. If you have a problem with miracles, because what we have here is a miracle. What we have here is supernatural. Just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's not real. If you have a problem with miracles, your problem isn't with miracles. Your problem is with your doctrine of God. So if you have a small God, well, it's going to be difficult to pull off the resurrection. But if you have the God of the Bible who created all things, who's the creator of the universe, who created all the laws of nature, well, surely he can suspend the laws of nature for his own purposes. That is not irrational or unreasonable. It is supernatural, but we're talking about God raising his son from the dead. The Christian faith is reasonable. Principle number two. The Christian faith is faith. Now, if you have a look at this passage again, Thomas believed because of what he saw with his own eyes. Now, we can't expect to see that. We're not going to see the resurrected Jesus. We're not going to see the marks in his hands or this wound in his side. Jesus right now isn't here with us. Look around. Is he here? No, he's not here. No, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's why Jesus said, verse 29, he says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, that's us. We haven't seen Jesus. Not physically. He's not around here. And yet most of us here this morning believe the evidence. And Jesus says we are blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it's important to understand what faith is. Faith is not believing the unbelievable. It's not screwing up your eyes and believing what isn't true. It's not trying to awaken this hero inside of you. That is not biblical faith. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, also didn't get it right. He says, faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Another atheist said this, it's it's false, but it's priceless. He said, faith is like a blind man going into a dark room looking for a black cat who isn't there. (laughs) It's false, but it's priceless. Christian faith is not absolute proof. That's why Paul says we live by faith, not by sight. But it's not a step in the dark. It's a step in the light. It's based on objective historical evidence. Now, let me try and clear up something where there's a lot of misunderstanding. Certain things are proved by science. Two and two is four. You can do that with objects. You can do that with mathematics. Two and two is four. Three and three is six. Four and four is eight. You can prove the law of gravity. If you take this, this pen, you drop it a hundred times, and you can say, I can prove from the experiment that there is the law of gravity. But there are many things you cannot prove by science. You've got to prove by evidence. You cannot prove by science that your mother loves you. Can you? No, you have to provide evidence. She cared for you. She loved you. She fed you. She was up half the night for you. In fact, some of you here, the evidence is that you are alive. She didn't murder you when you were a teenager. You can't prove that scientifically. You can only prove that through evidence. You cannot prove scientifically that Mr. Mandela was the president of our country in 1994. You cannot prove that scientifically. You've got to prove that through evidence. There are documents. There are videos. There are people who saw him, who spoke to him. There's evidence, and the evidence tells you this is true. So it is with Jesus. You cannot prove him scientifically. I can't bring him in here in a test tube. It doesn't work like that. All I can give you is the evidence, the documents, the eyewitness reports, the source documents, the historical material. So Christian faith is still faith. But it's not faith in the dark. It's faith in the light. I believe there is reasonable, more than reasonable evidence To believe that he lived, that he died, and that God supernaturally raised him from the dead. That does not mean, my friends, that our faith will not be tested. Our faith is tested. God doesn't give us all the answers, we don't understand everything. We don't. There have often been times in the ministry where I've been with a family and there's been the death of a child, it's a tragedy. You broken, or the death of a young father who has a young wife and young children, and I don't have all the answers. And sometimes I drive away from the funeral, and I'm saying to God, God, if I was God, I wouldn't have wouldn't have allowed this to happen. He doesn't answer all our questions, but I know that it's true because of the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Joseph Parker, a minister in London, claimed to never have any doubts until his wife died. And then he wrote, and I quote, "...in that dark hour I almost became an atheist, for God had set his foot upon my prayers and treated my petitions with contempt. If I had seen a dog in such agony as mine, I would have pitied and helped the dumb beast." Yet God spat upon me and cast me out as an offense, out into the waste wilderness and the night black and starless. We don't have all the answers, but we do know it's true because of the evidence. He lived, he died, God supernaturally raised him from the dead. It is eminently reasonable, the Christian faith, but it is still faith. We live by faith, not by sight. Two quick comments. The one is about doubt. Think about it only Christians can really doubt. Atheists can't doubt. You can't doubt what you don't believe. (laughs) So if you're struggling with doubt, uh, you're probably a Christian. Also remember, there's a huge difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. So many people don't recognize that difference, so they feel guilty with, with, the, with their doubts and they're ashamed and they keep it to themselves and they don't get the help they should get. Unbelief is a determined decision to reject God. It's a, dis- it's a determined act not to believe in Christ. It's a determined act to turn away from God, to reject God, and it's sinful. Doubt is not sinful, but it is serious. So you need help. There is help. Because if you leave it, it may turn to unbelief. Just the second comment, when I'm saying Christian faith is faith, all worldviews, all worldviews need a step of faith. You can't just say, well, you're a person of faith. I'm not a person of faith. That is not true. Every worldview takes a step of faith. If you are a hedonist, you believe the only point of life, the purpose of life is me, my pleasure, my rights, my needs, my happiness. That is your step of faith. You believe that is the only purpose in life. That's why you are here. That is your worldview. You need a step of faith. If you are an evolutionist, you take a massive step of faith. Because you are saying that at the beginning there was nothing. Nothing, nothing. No matter, no energy, no time, no chance. Nothing. And from that nothing, nothing, here we are. Complex, complicated people in a world. That takes huge faith. You have to take a step of faith, whatever your worldview is. So when we say that Christianity needs a step of faith, it is not unlike every other worldview. And I believe we have more evidence... For believing in the Christian faith. Evidence as found here in the eyewitness reports of the Apostle John. Our last point. First point, the Christian faith is reasonable. Second, the Christian faith is faith. The third point, the Christian faith is vital. Have a look again at verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Now, literally, it's much stronger. Don't be an unbeliever. Rather, be a believer. Now, you read that and you say to yourself, surely it was unnecessary for Jesus to say that to Thomas. Surely the evidence of Jesus standing in front of Thomas would have made him believe. And yet Jesus still says, don't be an unbeliever, be a believer. Why does he do that? Well, my dear friends, there were thousands of people who saw the miracles of Christ, but they did not believe. Merely seeing a miracle, merely seeing the supernatural in action doesn't mean you are a believer. There were hundreds, there were thousands who saw Jesus feeding the 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes. There were hundreds of people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But they did not believe. You know how it is. You know it's all smoke and mirrors. I mean, it didn't really happen. He had... uh, he had Fournos Bakery there at the back, handing out loaves. Um, just seeing a miracle doesn't make you a believer. No, he says, don't be an unbeliever. I'd rather be a believer, meaning take a step. Exercise your will. You've got to take a step. You've got to cross the line. Faith is more like getting married than catching measles. Let me explain that. Catching measles happens to you. It catches you unawares. You wake up one morning and you say, Oh, oh, my glands are swollen. got spots on my skin. I must have measles. It just happened. Faith in Christ is not like that. It doesn't just happen to you. It doesn't just catch you unawares. You don't just wake up one morning and say, My goodness me, I'm a Christian. No, it doesn't work like that. No, faith is like getting married. You don't just wake up one morning and say, my goodness me, I'm married. Who is this person in the bed? No, getting married requires a decision, a choice, an act of the world. So it is with becoming a Christian. It requires a decision, a choice, an act of the world. Verse 27, don't be an unbeliever, be a believer. Notice again verse 29. "'Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.'" Jesus knew that we would not be there. Jesus knew that we wouldn't hear his words in our ears. He knew that we wouldn't see the miracles with our eyes. He knew that we wouldn't see him hanging on the cross. He knew that we wouldn't see him raised from the dead. And yet we can know these things. Why? Because God, in his providence, selected a group of apostles and other eyewitnesses to give us the evidence Your mother loves you. Here's the evidence. Jesus died on the cross and rose. Here's the evidence. And they pass this information on to us. We have eyewitness records here. It's the next best thing to being there. In fact, it's better. Because if you had lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, chances are you wouldn't actually have seen the miracles. You know how it is. You're in this crowd of 5,000 men. That means 20,000 people. Suddenly there's bread. You have no idea what's happening. Perhaps, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, that you had to be born again, while well, you were out of town. Perhaps the death of Christ. When he hung on the cross, well, you were on holiday in your timeshare on the Red Sea. (laughs) And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, you missed the empty tomb because you were tied up with family matters. Whereas we, in fact, have it all. Carefully researched, carefully written, carefully explained, so that we can come to faith in Christ just as Thomas did. The evidence is here before you. So actually, we are at no disadvantage evidence is here we believe by reading the same evidence that Thomas had the only difference between us and Thomas is that Thomas had to trust his own eyes and we have to trust the testimony and the eyes of John it's the only difference let me close and give you four consequences of the resurrection four consequences, what does it mean? what are the consequences? so what? Number one, it means that Jesus must be who he said he was. I mean, there are many people who said, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. They are mostly in hospital wards. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. He's talking about the self-existence of the Son. The resurrection proves to us that what he said about himself must be true. He must be who he said he is, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Secondly, it means that everything Jesus said must be true. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. My dear friends, people hate the exclusive nature of the Christian faith. You know that, I know that. They hate the exclusivity of the gospel. And yet those are the words of Jesus. It must be true. He proved it by dying and rising from the dead. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden with sin and guilt and shame, and I will give you rest. It must be true. Rest for my soul. Forgiveness for my sin. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how long it is, doesn't matter how deep it is. There's forgiveness, there's grace. Perhaps you've lied, perhaps you've cheated, perhaps you've committed adultery, perhaps you've shattered a family, a marriage, perhaps you've had an abortion, perhaps you've caused an abortion. There is forgiveness, there is grace. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy laden with your guilt, and I will give you rest. It must be true. He rose from the dead. It means that he's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. My dear friends, if you trust in Christ, you also will be raised from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. You are immortal until God takes you home. Do you know that? It doesn't mean you shouldn't wear seatbelts in the car. It doesn't mean you should go bungee jumping without a rope. But you are immortal until God takes you home, and then you are even more immortal. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, those who trust in Jesus will die and be raised from the dead. How do we know I'm not just uh, whistling in the wind? How do we know that I haven't been smoking something? No, because of the resurrection of Christ and the evidence we have in front of us. It means, fourthly, that we find our purpose for living in Christ. There is no other purpose, my dear friends. There is no other ultimate purpose. Is it all just about you and your little life and your little happiness and your little family and your little future? Is that all that it is? It's pathetic. It's so sad. Is that your life? It's all just about me and my little world and my little happiness. Is that your life? Is that all there is? No, Jesus has come to give us life in abundance, to give us purpose. We live for him. We don't live for ourselves. We live for him. It gives me purpose to get up in the morning. It gives me purpose when I'm going through suffering. It gives me purpose when I'm struggling. It gives me purpose to live, to live for Christ. But let me just say that none of this will be true unless you take a step. You've got to take a step. You've got to cross a line. Doing nothing, you are saying no. Doing nothing, you are rejecting Christ. Doing nothing will end in tears. It'll be a shipwreck. This exchange appeared on the internet but was denied by U.S. authorities. I quote, ship, please divert your course five degrees south to avoid a collision. Reply, Recommend you divert your course 10 degrees south to avoid a collision. Ship, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. Ship, this is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. Reply. This is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. It's a fact. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. You may not believe in the lighthouse, but you will hit it. Why not turn to him before that day? Let's pray. Perhaps today is the day that you need to get right with God. You've been ducking and diving. But today, as we've been singing, as we've been praying, as we've been looking at God's word, you have felt God, the Holy Spirit, pressing upon your mind and your heart. And you know you need to get right with God. You get right with God by talking to him, by prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer that will help you to get right with God and put your trust in Christ. Now, this prayer may not be for you. You may not be ready to pray this prayer, and we understand that. But perhaps you do know that God wants you to get right with him. So you repeat this prayer just quietly in the back of your head. It's between you and God. Lord, I don't understand it all. But I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? Father, we thank you that when we call upon you with all our doubts, with all our questions, and all our sin and garbage, that you hear and you answer. So work amongst us now, we pray,
0: for Christ's sake. Amen.